Say, friend, do you have bad breath? Do you need a gum that will help you out with that? Well, we've got the gum for you. Triple that gum. We'll make you <gasps> The song from the gum commercial. And welcome to another episode of the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and today we're going to be talking about a long-awaited episode on the show. I'm sure everyone's been clamoring about it, uh, and I'm I'm so happy we're finally doing it, and we're, we're doing it with a very special guest, in my opinion. Um, but for those of you who uh, may not know what Inside Out is, let me give you a little bit background before we jump in with the guest host for today. So Inside Out came out in 2015. It's a Disney Pixar movie by Pete Docter, who is a pretty big name in the Pixar realm, and then Ronnie Del Carmen, his co-director and his co-story writer. And it stars Amy Poehler, Bill Hader, Louis Black, Mindy Kaling, and Phyllis Smith. Phyllis from The Office. Uh, Richard Kind plays Bing Bong. Uh, Kyle MacLachlan plays the dad. Diane Lane plays the mom. Like, this is a huge, huge ensemble cast and um, many great voice actors also doing little bit roles here like uh, Frank Oz does the subconscious guard Dave which is amazing Frank Oz voice of Yoda oh so good Um, and anyways the story follows the inside of a girl named Riley she's 11 years old she loves her life in Minnesota and, um, you know, when she's 11, her dad gets uh, a new job. Uh, it's pretty uh, hard to tell what exactly he's doing, but he, he seems like he's pretty high up in maybe a startup. Uh, and if they're in San Francisco, maybe it's a tech startup. I don't know. But uh, we, we follow Riley's journey through navigating a changing childhood and a changing life and a changing environment. Through the perspective of five emotional homunculi, little people inside of her head. And uh, those are the five emotions that most of us could easily pick up out of the out of the blue. Joy, sadness, anger, fear and disgust and uh, hilarity ensues. It's a very touching tale. It's a very poignant tale. And we're going to delve right into the meat of it. My guest host today is Dr. Molly Metz. Molly is an assistant professor teaching stream at the University of Toronto, where she teaches large enrollment, lower level statistics and research methods courses, as well as smaller upper level social psych courses. 
a social psychologist by training, both her research and teaching are informed by the importance of social relations and autonomous motivation for learning and well-being. Molly, welcome to the program. Thanks, Alex. I am so happy that you are finally on the show. We are the best buddies from grad school, and we have chatted about movies a a lot. I think you will agree. Um, We do have slightly different tastes, but I think those tastes, uh, you know, complemented each other. You introduced me to films like Rent and Across the Universe. I have a great memory about Across the Universe that I will never forget. Um, And I introduced you to Indiana Jones. You slept through some of it, but that's okay. (laughs) But I think we meet at a shared love of Disney movies. So we're going to be talking about Inside Out today. How would you say your research and or teaching relates to film? Well, this one is really easy. Uh, Thank you for starting with an easy question. Um, One of the first new courses that I prepped when I started at the University of Toronto was a social psychology of emotion course, um, and I teach it almost every term. The last few semesters, we actually watch the movie in class together uh, and talk about it in terms of the research on emotion. You know, what rings true? What theories of emotion does the movie seem to espouse? What do the writers take creative license with? Um, We also talk about what the movie might have looked like if they used a different theory of emotion and things like that. Um, So it's really nice to, I mean, it's a nice break at the end of a semester. We do it um, the last class before they have to do their in-class presentations. Um, But it's also really fun to review course material in this new context and show students how they can use their new knowledge to shape how they consume uh, media and popular culture. That's awesome. And I see that in the notes that you put a um, what what your assignment is. Do you want to briefly describe what that assignment is? Yeah, so it's super low key. This is stuff just on the slides after we watch the movie together. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, I need to have a reason to show a movie, a Disney movie in class. (laughs) Do you? Um, So (laughs) I I mean, so at least um, for a little while, we talk about, you know, just the basics of you know, the five main emotion characters and what their main function is and a specific example of a behavior or a quote from the movie that demonstrates that function. Um, We talk about what theory of emotion the filmmakers are endorsing by um, using these five characters. Um, We look at what a film about dimensional emotions might look like. Um, And then just as a way to um, get them thinking about how they could apply this or be tested on it, I asked them to develop their own test question or writing prompt asking someone to apply course concepts to the Ooh. film. Um, so I like doing that. I do that in some a lot of my classes, actually. Um, it's a nice way to see what they think is important. Yeah. Um, and I get some really good ideas for test questions sometimes. That's awesome. I like that one. Okay, so let's just um, broaden the discussion before we come back to Inside Out. So I ask all my guest hosts, what do you love about film and why just in general, you combine film and psychology as we are psychology instructors? Um, What would you want other uh, film enthusiasts or students to see in the connection between psych and film? Yeah, so I don't have strong thoughts about film specifically. 
Um, but I just love fiction. Um, I watch a ton of movies. I read a lot of books. Um, that was one thing people bugged me about in grad school, right? How do you possibly have time to read fiction? And I was like, I couldn't not. Um, I refuse not to. Um, I love serial TV and immersing myself in these well-crafted fictional worlds, um, becoming attached to characters and caring about their outcomes. Um, and I think, you know, some people can be a little bit snobbish about the consumption of media and popular culture. Um, you know, I've heard more than once like, oh, I don't have a TV. I don't have time to watch sure. TV. Uh, right. I think that's totally unnecessary. Yeah. Um, TV and movies can be so smart. They can be so sharp. And when they're really done well, they can make you think about things in a new way, see the world um, through someone else's eyes, um, can tell you something about what it is to be human. Um, and so I love using clips from TV shows or characters um, from my favorite movies or fictional worlds to... Um, I love using these things in my teaching because um, it's a way of connecting these, you know, technical jargony terms and theories with something real and engaging. Um, I also think that it's important to remember that, you know, who knows what our students will be doing. Most of them are not going on to be academic researchers. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and I mean, and that's probably for the best for everyone. Um, and. I can almost guarantee, though, that regardless of what it is they're doing, they're going to be consuming uh, media of some kind. Um, and I really do think that knowing the research uh, can make them more critical of cultural messages that they um, receive from TV and movies um, and more appreciative of the ones that do a really great job reflecting what we know about um, human behavior. Yeah. And I also think when it comes to the production of um, stories of uh, podcasts and articles and um, movies and whatever that knowing a little bit more about psychology can make for a better story. Um, and I really like sharing that with my students. Yeah, that is a great answer. And I 100% cosign <laughs> on it. And uh, I think it gets discounted a little bit. I mean, we were just joking just a few minutes ago about it being like a lazy day of class almost, but <laughs> it's really not because you still have to, you know, have your mind work. Your mind's still working on analyzing the situation and what you're looking at and what you're consu consuming. So, you know, it's a different right, delivery it's day. It's still course concepts. It's still, uh, we're just gonna, we're just gonna do a little, a little different today. Yeah. And I, I like it because it's, um, you know, it's important for us. We want our students not just to be able to define things and um, regurgitate back definitions, yeah. but apply what they're learning to the real world. And I mean, inside out counts as the real world for that day. Um, yeah. And it's also, you know, I joke around with my students in most of my classes that I, um, you know, have a propaganda campaign to convince them that the things I teach them really matters. <laughs> and so this is another way to share the relevance of what it is that we're learning, right? This Indeed. isn't just stuff in a textbook. Yeah, um, yeah it's yeah. not boring. We're, we're, I'm not, I'm not going to have you just sit here and read and then I'm going to regurgitate to you what you just read. We're just, we're going to put it all together. And, you know, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's a cartoon, yes, but its delivery and its message all exist in the real world. 
So we should uh, take it as such. Yeah. Molly, as I mentioned, we are going to be talking about Inside Out, as you, as you have as well. Um, in fact, when I launched the podcast, I have the messages, I have the receipts. You messaged me, and you called dibs on it. <laughs> like, and you literally <laughs> used dibs. Uh, so, taking w- what you've already mentioned, and the fact that you use, you use this exact film in your class... Uh, What was your reasoning behind calling dibs and wanting to be on the show for Inside Out? Well, I just love this movie. Uh, When it first came out, um, my husband and I actually saw it twice in the theaters um, and cried both times uh, when we were watching this movie again a couple weeks ago. And, you know, taking my notes, even thinking about prepping for the podcast, we were still crying slash laughing until we're crying, depending on the part of the movie. (laughs) Um, You know, in addition to being a really touching story, the animation is just absolutely incredible um and the movie's a few years old now but i remember thinking when we were seeing it in the theater that we have just reached this point where the animation even in kids movies is just unsettlingly realistic i remember thinking that about the scenes of riley when she was a baby um and just like most kids movies there's so much good stuff in the movie for an adult audience um i told you before one of my absolute favorite bits is uh toward the beginning when Fear is worried about there being a bear, and Anger says, there are no bears in San Francisco. Saw a really hairy guy, though. He looks like a bear. And I (laughs) laugh every single time, even though I know it's coming. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I just just love this movie. Um, But I also think it's really special. Um, It's unique in that it's not just this great example of human psychology and behavior, like a lot of the films that you have talked about on the podcast so far. But Actually, two of the foremost contemporary emotion researchers, Paul Ekman and Dr. Keltner, mm-hmm. served as advisors on the production, um, right. meaning that this movie is a really great example of sharing psychological science with a general audience um, and the possibility of collaboration between scientists and creators. I just think that's um, I just think it's wonderful. And there's so much to talk about. Yeah, there is so much to talk about. And and we we had this discussion before we started re- recording um that it's probably we're, we're probably not going to be able to get to all of it uh in in you know in 50 60 minutes cuz there's just we we could spend hours we could literally spend hours talking about it um so i think what we can do in this discussion is and um i think we we both had this the same idea um when we are where we were independently putting our notes together is talk about the two main psychological concepts topics thematically that fit inside out um which are emotion and memory and i think we'll tackle emotion first because this is obvious i think that's the obvious first step literally right so it's that's why we're here that's why we're here right now um so uh to get us started started with emotions, what are your um, major takeaways with how emotion is presented in the film? Start with an easy question, didn't yes. you? So the first thing that I think um, we need to start with is the theori- the theoretical perspective on emotion that this film espouses. I mentioned that in the questions that I uh, talk about with my students. Right. Um, so to kind of expand on that a little bit, there are multiple theoretical perspectives on 
what emotions are, um, how they develop, what they contain, how the different pieces are related to one another. Um, and just like any area of research, there isn't one theory that is absolutely correct. Um, right. This, right. I mean, this movie, um, given that it was done in consultation with uh, Keltner and Ekman, definitely espouses a basic emotion model. Yeah. Yeah. And so this basic emotion perspective um, has a few key components to it. Um, I think one of the most important parts to it is that emotions are discrete, Mm -hmm. meaning that we have the emotions like anger, fear, joy, sadness, and disgust in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Other basic emotion models include other emotions um, that were not included uh, in this film. To interject here, uh, Pete Docter, the um, filmmaker, he was like, no, we can't have all seven or whatever because that's just too many characters for kids and others to follow. So he told the two of them, nope. Five. <laughs> well, and I mean, that's fair. I mean, so I think that so these five are consistent across most basic emotion models. Sure. Um, I would say Ekman would also include surprise mm-hmm. as the sixth, although like the difference between surprise and fear is kind of muddy um, right. and not at all clear. Um, but other basic emotion models over the years have had um, 10 or 11 10. or 26. Oh, I, I did right. not know that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Right. So that's that's way too many characters. Uh, this is not an ensemble show. Um, <laughs> so these five, though, are the five that most of these models have in common. So it's a good place uh, to start. Sure. Now, this basic discrete perspective uh, kind of places each of these emotions as categorically distinct from one another. Um, so... Anger is anger, and that is qualitatively and categorically different than joy, which is different from disgust. Mm-hmm. Um, each of these emotions um, coordinates all of the different aspects of emotion, by which I mean the cognitive appraisals, mm-hmm. the physiological arousal, the behavioral responses, the subjective feelings that go along with an emotion. Um, so the this categorical perspective says that when you um, signal like fear, when you set off fear, then that's going to bring up all of the associated fear-related programs in the brain yeah. that they all work together. Yeah. Um, the other part of the basic emotion model um, is that they are innate rather than acquired or learned, that these are, um, that we are born with them. Um, this implies a biological or a genetic basis to them. Uh, this is most consistent with um, an evolutionary perspective on the um, functionality of emotion. Right. So I do think that that's one of the um, coolest things about this movie. And one of the most valuable things about it is that it really shows that emotions serve a function. Right. And that's actually, I mean, that's something that most models of emotion would agree on, um, regardless of how you think emotions are structured or how they are developed. Um, they serve a purpose, right? Joy is not just about feeling good and sadness is not just about feeling bad. Mm. Let's have joy describe. 
what the jobs of these emotions do. Yeah. Yeah, let's listen to Joy tell us all about that, and then we'll come back and um, add any add any flavor. It was amazing. Just Riley and me, forever. Thirty-three seconds. I'm sadness. Oh, hello. I, I'm Joy. So, can I just, if you could, I just want to fix that. <laughs> Thanks. And that was just the beginning. Headquarters only got more crowded from there. Very nice. Okay, looks like you got this. Very good. Oh, that's her turn. Oh, look out! That's fear. He's really good at keeping Riley safe. Easy, easy, huh? Hi, back! Oh, we're good. We're good. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we're back. Here we go. All right, open. Hmm, this looks new. Think it's safe? What is it? Okay, caution. There is a dangerous smell, people. Hold on, what is that? This is disgust. She basically keeps Riley from being poisoned, physically and socially. That is not brightly colored or shaped like a dinosaur. Hold on, guys. It's broccoli! Yeah! Well, I just saved our lives. Ooh. Yeah, you're welcome. Riley, if you don't eat your dinner, you're not gonna get any dessert. Wait, did he just say we couldn't have dessert? That's anger. He cares very deeply about things being fair. So that's how you want to play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner right after you eat this. Ah! Right, right. Here comes an airplane. Ah! Oh, airplane. We got an airplane, everybody. You've met sadness. Okay, so Joy described for us the emotions in that clip. And um, do, do you have anything that you want to add to Joy's description, Molly? Yeah, so first, I think was really interesting. Um, she doesn't really say what her purpose is. Yes. <laughs> um, and I like they don't, they don't make a big deal out of that. And I think that makes sense. People just kind of assume that Joy is just like that. It's it's just joy, right? It, happiness is just about being happy, and it's just yeah. a good thing. And we don't really talk about the function. Mm-mm. We don't. But I think what is really cool about that is that's pretty consistent with research on positive and negative emotions, that negative emotions do seem to have these really specific functions and associated action tendencies, whereas the um, positive emotions like joy, as well as interest and amusement, for example, don't have as obvious and clear functions. Yeah. And I, and I think Joy's character arc in the movie has to uh, do with her coming to terms with her function. Because right. she has to she has to essentially live this experience outside of herself, herself, sorry, and um recognize that She's not the antagonist to sadness, and Joy can't be in control of HQ 100% of the time, but she's a <laughs> complement to sadness. They actually have to work together. 
Well, and that's the other interesting piece at the beginning is that, you know, she says right away, like, and here's sadness, right? Mm. I don't really know what her purpose yeah. is. Um, and that's, I think, one of the most beautiful parts of the story. But we can talk more about that later. Yeah. So before we jump into that, because I think that's the a critical part of discussing um, how the film um, uh, ends. Uh, so I asked... And I'm going to have more of your thoughts later in the episode before we end, um, including some special guests. But I asked um, our colleagues through the Society of, for Teaching of Psychology uh, their thoughts on Inside Out. And I think we had a pretty good, lively discussion back and forth about how you all use the film in your teaching. And one of the things that came up was uh, a competing theory for emotion. Um, and I think you have a better handle on this because you're teaching emotion. So I'm going to give that <laughs> to you. So, I mean, I'll preface this by saying I don't know that I have a great handle on it. Um, I'm better not as familiar with it. <laughs> it wasn't something I had heard about until I started teaching the class, but I'll gotcha. give it my best shot. Um and so the perspective that uh, came up on the board and I think is important to acknowledge is a totally separate model of emotion called psychological constructionism. Yeah. Um, the big name most associated with this perspective is Lisa Feldman Barrett. Um, she has this great book, How Emotions Are Made, as well as some really great TED Talks. That's a, that's a great um, she title, was also, actually. It's, right? I mean, it fits um, the constructionism part. Real well. Right. And she also was the like primary counterpoint to all of the interviews with Peltner and Eckman right. after the release of Inside Out. So any article you read that was like, what Inside Out got wrong, interviewed her. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So psychological constructionism is a, 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 a attempt to deal with what's called the emotion paradox. So the, okay. this paradox that had been... Um, kind of identified in the literature, was that people have really vivid and clear and distinct experiences of emotion. Um, so if you ask anyone, right, not just a psychologist, okay. if you ask anyone um, about experiences of anger and sadness and happiness, that they can very clearly report on having those experiences themselves, okay. on witnessing those emotions in others, um, understanding the implications of those emotions um like there do seem to be at least in our social experience very clear distinct discrete emotions Hmm. but when you look to the psychophysiological and neuroscientific evidence right so the attempt to find these emotions in the brain and in the body Mm -hmm. there is absolutely no consistent evidence for the existence of discrete categories of experience um so like first and most obviously like you cannot find anger in the brain um and like that sounds really obvious so it's not even like an anger so it's not even isolated uh, enough in imaging studies is that no so not only is there obviously not like an anger center of the brain or whatever that means um but you know we, we we know that right that we've kind of moved past this like modern day phrenology. We sure. know that psychological and cognitive experiences are in networks of activity right. and in patterns of activation, but there aren't even consistent patterns and networks. Yeah. 
So, and we also know from early research that there are not consistent um, autonomic and uh, parasympathetic nervous system activation in response to discrete memories. So like classic emotion perspective, William James, right. um, Wrote on emotion and, on one hand, when he was writing, he got a lot right, right? Read stuff he has on the self and on consciousness, yeah, sure. and it's killer. Um, but in his perspective on emotion was that the the psych the physiological experience is the emotion. Yeah. So you are you encounter a stimulus in the environment and your body does something mm-hmm. <laughs> automatically mm-hmm. and unconsciously, mm-hmm. and then that is the experience of the emotion not that that shapes your experience or that shapes your interpretation but that literally is the emotion um but what that requires is that each emotion has a distinct and unique profile of arousal and there's just no evidence for that right instead we see kind of a non-specific pattern of physiological arousal that when you're activated your heart starts beating faster you start breathing a little heavier your pupils dilate you might sweat a little mm-hmm. but it's the same stuff going on in your body when you are worried about a test and when you're watching a scary movie and when you're turned on by your new date like all of these things in the body look very similar and you have to look to the context to figure out what it is um so all that together is what this constructionism perspective is responding to is that there just is no evidence for these discrete categories of experience. Um, instead, it seems that emotions are constructed events <laughs> in the moment rather than these like fixed constructs. Um, One description that I really like uh, likens it to any other type of human concept or category that doesn't exist in nature, but is still real to people. So, for example, like the concept of pet. Okay. Right. Pet is a real human concept, but it isn't some objective reality that exists in the world, that that's a meaning that we have imposed. Um, Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, so this perspective um, says that emotion categories are learned. Um, mm-hmm. There's so much more room for learning and personal experience okay. and context and culture yeah. that there just aren't these pre-made packages um, programmed into our bodies or brains. Uh, sounds, I mean, that sounds reasonable, uh, especially the social and, and, and uh, cultural pieces to it. Uh so I can understand why the two camps go back and forth on this one. Yeah, absolutely. I will say, though, that, um, you know, a a basic model of emotion doesn't um, disregard the importance of learning and context and appraisal. Okay, yeah, sure. So, right. So like the earliest perspectives, right, like Darwin's perspective on emotion, it was much more um, basic, I guess. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and fundamental. but. Appraisal still matters a lot, and there are, uh, you know, multiple perspectives that allow for substantial variation in across cultures, um, both in um, the rules that govern what is okay to display or not, or how we regulate our emotions or what the ideal emotions are that we strive for. Mm -hmm. 
So that perspective um, says that, you know, like humans have these innate emotion categories that our bodies respond to a stimulus in the environment in a given way, but learning and culture still shape the way that those are revealed or experienced. Yeah. Yes, I agree with that um, because of the literature in both the behaviorists perspective. So in in learning circles and um, in uh, developmental emotion uh, circles where children don't come pre-wired to understand that some things are dangerous and other things aren't. And so they actually learn through a series of reinforcement and punishment that some things end up triggering a fear response or a happiness response by looking at their models and their models being their parents. Um, So, yeah, I think that idea is not... We, we we don't need to contain it to just emotion research. We can throw in a bunch of other subdisciplines in here. And I think I think <laughs> we coalesce to I a reasonable so. idea. Um, but it 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 is it is helpful to separate some of those perspectives because we don't wanna we don't wanna say that uh, this is the only thing. And you know, unfortunately, some some novice psychologists will go see the movie and they'll be like, well, I guess that's what emotions like, I suppose. Right. And I mentioned this when we were talking before too, that, you know, I think that's, you know, that's one of the uh, consequences of having real scientists um, consult on the film. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, Right. So Mm -hmm. um, by having them, you know, doing their interviews and having their names in the credits that they're signing off on this perspective of emotion, and someone who isn't familiar with the research could very easily say, well, since scientists were involved in this, this must be how it really is. Well, it, it's hard to tell whether or not people actually do buy into that unless they are, you know, cued to look at that information. You know, how many people look at uh, the credits? You know, not enough, but <laughs> oh, well. But if you do see that there was consultation from researchers, and you're like, oh, that's the title. Oh, those people. Oh, okay. They know exactly what they're talking about, and they morphed it into a story. And yeah, so the, it's going to lose some some expandability, I guess. Yeah. So I like. I do think that that is an important thing to keep in mind. Is this film is very clearly espousing a perspective on emotion, right. but it is not the only one. Yes. And before I forget, I do want to thank Tarita Upchurch Pool for bringing that up in the uh, thread on this. Uh, I, I she didn't say don't use her name, so I'm going to use her name. <laughs> thank you, Tarita. I appreciate we appreciate it because it's good discu- good discussion. And I got to say, Molly, that was a really good description. You taught you taught me thank something. You, you know. Um, so even though I've taught emotion once, I have no idea whether or not I taught that. <laughs> I can't say <laughs> that I did. So, all right. Before we move on to the other main uh, topic, I did want to mention, um, because l- let's take this back to the movie just a little bit, and the realization, as I mentioned, of Joy and her uh, her unwilling... 
She's very rigid in the beginning, but this quest to get back to headquarters uh, changes her as a person because she spends time, quote unquote, uh, in other parts of the brain. She's lost. Um, and so the outward experience of Riley, uh, it, you know, reflects that. I'll come back to that topic in just a second. But we learn on this journey with joy. And we love it because we learn with the character. And that's, I think, the best thing for the audience. That sadness performs a, a, a role beyond just making you feel bad, making you, uh, for lack of a better word, sad. And <laughs> that there is an immense amount of value in sadness, right? If it had no function that would keep us alive, I'm, I'm going back to an evolutionary perspective, sorry. Uh, <laughs> if it had no function beyond no, sorry. that, then I'm just, just, just taking sadness as a vacuum. Then we wouldn't have it. Because our genes would be like, "You're this is stupid. Let's get rid of it. It's dead weight, <laughs> right? Maybe it could be a by- byproduct, but uh, byproducts, generally speaking, don't have that amount of weight to them, right? In, right. in well, keeping I, us I alive. Mean, it is worth saying that it doesn't require an evolutionary perspective sure. to see the function of sadness. Fine. Um, you know, as you know, I I really value an evolutionary perspective on. Um, human psychology and behavior, yes. but I don't think that's necessary to believe or to uh, to think that these emotions have functions that they serve a, a role. I'm going to throw my cards on the table and I'm going to say I do, but go ahead. <laughs> so we we learn that um, sadness has a as a as a more profound function, and uh, you see it first when Bing Bong is really sad. I'm going to go ahead and play that clip of him losing his rocket ship to the depths of forgetting <gasps> my rocket wait Riley and i were still using that rocket it, 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 it still has some song power left who is your friend who likes to play no 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 you can't take my rocket to the depths. Riley and i go to the moon Riley can't be done with me. Hey, it's going to be okay. We can fix this. We just need to get back to headquarters. Which way to the train station? I had a whole trip planned for us. (gasps) Hey, who's ticklish, huh? Here comes the tickle monster. Hey, Bing Bong, look at this. Oh, here's a fun game. You point to the train station and we all go there. Won't that be fun? Come on, let's go to the train station. I'm sorry they took your rocket. They took something that you loved. It's gone forever. Sadness. Don't make him feel worse. Sorry. It's all I had left of Riley. I bet you and Riley had great adventures. Oh. They were wonderful. Once we flew back in time, we had breakfast twice that day. Sadness! That sounds amazing. I bet Riley liked it. Oh, she did. We were best friends. (laughs) Yeah, it's sad. 
I'm okay now. Come on, the train station is this way. How did you do that? I don't know. I, he was sad, so I listened to what. Hey, there's the train. So in that clip, sadness goes in comforts. Yeah. Comforts Bing Bong. And right before she comforts him, Joy is trying to change the subject by making silly faces, telling him that we've got to get to the train, uh, oogly boogly, this, that, and the other thing, to no avail <laughs> because Bing Bong is sad. Which brings me to a tangent that I don't want to get into, but who are the homunculi in these in these homunculi? That's what I want to know. Like, is this an ever reductionist homunculi? <laughs> uh, but anyways, right, like anyway, who's in headquarters? Yeah, uh, <laughs> who's in Bing Bong's headquarters? Uh, that's what I want to know. Uh, is it a dolphin? <laughs> an elephant? Uh, anyways. And some cotton and candy. And some cotton candy, yeah. Just some uh, amorphous, ephemeral kind of cotton candy. Uh, so then Sadness comes over because Joy is not having any luck. And Sadness comes over and was like, yo, it's, it must be, really, must be really hard for you to deal with that sort of uh, loss. And loss is a really powerful theme in the movie. Uh, Keltner and Ekman highlight this in their New York Times op-ed right after the film came out, and they say that sadness is the MVP of the movie because the entire movie is all about loss. Um, Riley loses her home. Riley loses her friends. Riley is losing her childhood. Yeah, it's really sad. Uh, and, um, she's, she's losing what feels like a part of her. Um, and that's reflected throughout the entire movie and interactions with other characters, uh, as well as losing joy from her headquarters. So it's all about loss and sadness is just perfectly there. To encapsulate how you deal with loss. And that's not like grinning and bearing it yourself through all of that pain, all of that sorrow. It's letting that pain and sorrow be you for the little bit. And I think that, I mean, that's just, that is just the most important message of the movie. And you know, we see this with Joy, who is always trying to, you know, get rid of sadness or keep sadness, you know, in her circle yep. and not getting in Reading the way. Reading the manuals. Um, trying to distract um, Bing Bong when Bing Bong is feeling sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see this in the kind of outside story, too, where um, Riley's mom says, you know, your dad's having a really rough time. I need you to be our happy girl. Yeah. You can do that, right? Right. Um, and, you know, Riley's 11. She's not going to say, no, I, you know, I, that's not reasonable. She's going to say, okay, I'll try. Yeah. 
but she's just not able to because she's lost so much. Um, and, you know, I think that this really mirrors this, this ridiculous cultural expectation that we be happy all the time and that we deal with hard stuff by just being happy and, you know, be distracted and find something else to do. And that's just, that's not how it works. Mm -mm. And so we learn with joy that that that's not, not only is it not possible, like it, it hurts. Yeah. Um, And, and and you got to live in that. You got to live, you got to feel that you got to feel that because I just went over the some basics of 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 coping um, yesterday in yeah. uh, health psych, and I I brought up this idea of toxic happiness, which many of our our colleagues mentioned in this um in th- in this thread. So thank you to all those uh, folks who mentioned the idea of toxic happiness. Um, but I said that you know approach and avoidant coping styles are good for different things. But sometimes avoidant coping is good for the short term, in like the immediate short term. Maybe I can just disregard it now, and maybe I can just put on a brave face. But if it keeps going, it's maladaptive. It's not going to help you. Well, and we were just talking about this in my emotion class two weeks ago with emotion regulation. Exactly. Um. Right. Like if you need to take a break, watch a Netflix show, get yourself together before you can deal with it, go for yeah. it. Um, yeah. And and the fact that, you know, the the stress of. The stress of the move for Riley and her family um, is palatable. I think many of us can relate. And um, in the very beginning. There's um, maybe not I, w- I don't want to say that Riley was actively avoiding, but there was some unconscious avoidance before. Joy and sadness get sucked through the tube and end up elsewhere. Yeah, it, I would instead of um, maybe instead of using the word avoidant because she wasn't like trying yeah, to distract herself. Exactly. Um, instead, I would use the word um, the term expressive suppression. Okay. Right. So. Um, this is a emotion regulation strategy okay. that we can employ after the emotion has already happened, but it's where we're trying to just squash it down, right? Don't think about it. Don't yeah. acknowledge it. Just keep doing what you're doing. Do what other people need you to do. Um, and in the short term, it can feel functional because you can still go to school or do whatever you need to do, mm-hmm. but it is not. it's not good for us. It's not good for us physiologically. It impairs our ability to um, encode and retrieve memories about the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can have a backfire effect too, that while you're suppressing, you're fine. But then when you stop suppressing, um, the thing that you are suppressing, those thoughts and those emotions come back, um, tenfold. Yeah. Yeah. They come back with a vengeance. And if you're not ready to deal with them, <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. It's rough time, isn't it? Yeah. The other special thing about you know, the interaction with sadness and bing bong um, isn't just, you know, acknowledging the sadness, but the importance of validation yeah. in when we're interacting with people that we care about. Right. So as you know, like I'm a relationships researcher, mm-hmm. that's my training. And yeah. um, it's just all of these interpersonal interactions of social support 
um, are just that much richer when you can communicate what's called responsiveness, right? So this is care and understanding and validation that you are absolutely reasonable (laughs) for feeling the way that you feel right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can go a really long way, especially if you've been taught to um, you know, put on a happy face and avoid feeling the sad thing that you're feeling and having someone say like, no, this is hard. That's okay. Um, can be really special. Yeah. And I think it can be really special to an 11 year old. Oh yeah. Um, don't have any yet, but I'm sure this will come in handy. <laughs> uh. <laughs> in a uh, five years, not that we're counting. Yeah, not for a while. <laughs> Luckily. Um, so, and I think um, this before we get to memory, because I do want to jump into memory, but you brought up some good points about the overall message of the film. Like, Mm -hmm. what's the purpose and how do you sort of manage that? You want to talk about that and then we can um, we can move on to memory. Yeah, I think that the especially emotion related Um, The big story here is that sadness serves a purpose Mm -hmm. Um, so that sadness is okay, that it's a reasonable response to uh, really hard things going on in your life. Um, But also in one of the little, you know, memory balls, we'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) um, We see what the essence of the function of sadness is, which is to communicate to others that you need them. Yeah. Right. We're, we're social creatures and some of our emotions are about intrapersonal survival, right? Disgust is literally about expelling a toxin um, to make sure that you survive. Sadness is a fundamentally interpersonal emotion in it. Yes. You know, it reaches it, it communicates a need for support. And so in the little memory ball, we see, you know, Riley, Uh, sitting on the tree limb after losing a hockey championship. And she's very sad. um, And her parents are sitting there comforting her. Mm -hmm. And then her teammates come up and join her and they're cheering for her because she's an important part of the team. And, you know, that's when we see the memory, you know, turn from blue to yellow. Mm. And so it was that it was being sad and it was showing that sadness that led her support system to rally around her. Yeah. First her parents and then her friends and, and her teammates. Her team. Yeah. And I think, um, joy realizing that she was, as she has been myopic and all of the orbs, all of the memory orbs need to be yellow is not healthy. Right. And we, Oh, it was so, it's so good. We see that when, um, you know, Riley comes back in the house after almost running away. Yeah, I'm going to play that clip too. Get your tissues ready. <laughs> I, I know you don't want me to, but I miss home. I miss Minnesota. You need me to be happy, but I want my old friends and my hockey team. I want to go home. Please don't be mad. Oh, sweetie. We're not mad. 
I miss Minnesota too. I miss the woods where we took hikes. And the backyard where you used to play. Spring Lake, where you learned to skate. Come here. We see um, Joy push sadness toward the controls. Yes. And she's willing to step back and say, you know, this, this is you. You got this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just such a powerful moment, both for Riley and for Sadness, who's also learning her own worth. Yeah, Sadness does also have a character arc, and it's it's one of immense growth and not being um, cast off to the side. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know. Well, and then I also think that the other part of this, um, you know, regardless of what, you know, model of emotion you think that the movie is supporting or whatever, is that it really gives kids in particular, um, and hopefully their parents who are watching the movie with them, a vocabulary to talk about their emotions that, first of all, with sadness, you don't just say, like, stop crying. It doesn't go away. That doesn't help anyone that you need to sit with it and talk about it and figure out what it's telling you. Um, But I shared with you before, there's this wonderful quote from an interview with Keltner um, about kind of the the public response to the movie. Mm Um, she says that he got an email from a mom who took her autistic boy to the movie, um, and seeing the movie was the first time that this young guy had insight into his emotional difficulty. Then he said, mom, I know I have anger, fear, and disgust, but I really struggle with sadness and joy. I don't know where they are. Um, and that this was this breakthrough moment that it was the first time that they were really able to talk about emotion. Um, and this is not, this is something that we can all, uh, I think benefit from yeah. and being able to put words to what we're feeling um, mm-hmm. without judgment or like moral uh, um, assigning moral value to our emotions, but right. being able to just identify them and figure out what they're telling us, I think is really valuable. Yeah. I, I mean, the, 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 what, what Keltner is saying there is that this autistic boy um, grew his emotional intelligence a ton. So we're going to take a quick break. So I'm going to try this first time. We take a quick break. <laughs> well, uh, I have a little special treat after the break. Welcome back. So. Remember a couple of episodes ago, earlier this year, I uh, said that I was going to be adding a new feature to the show, and I said I was going to um, uh, ask listeners and colleagues and who else would like to uh, join in in the conversation uh, how you might use or what psych concepts you spot in the films that we talk about on this on this show. And so uh, this particular one, Inside Out, we got an overwhelming response on the Society for the Teaching of Psychology uh, Facebook page. Uh, lots of people joined in and gave their voice. We, we already talked about a, f- a couple of those voices earlier in the show. But before we get to those folks, and I can't go through all of them, I wanted to share with you 
what uh, two special guests that I have had to say about it. So I asked my two kids, Ollie, who is five, just about to turn six, and Ellie, who is three, what they loved about uh, Inside Out. And here are their responses. What's your favorite part about Inside Out? I like sadness and joy. Why? Because because they are my favorite. They're your favorites because you're they're your favorites. Yeah. <laughs> I love the the background, the green and the blue, green and blue. Green and blue. Yeah, green and blue. Green? Who's green? I'm her. You had down her like me. Yeah. Do you know her name? Uh. Yeah. Disgust. <laughs> what about anger? He has fire. He has fire? Yeah. And you like that? Yes. <laughs> you sure? Yes. What else does he do? Um, he does do fire. It's Bing Bong's song. He does. Bing bong, bing bong. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, there's a, those are kids for you. Uh, you know, two young kids for you, uh, not knowing a, what the hell daddy's asking about. Uh, <laughs> so, to your responses, uh, to the listeners and, and colleagues, uh, there was some great, uh, great input from... Uh, you all on Facebook and here's what a few of you had to say so Jennifer Jurgensen McGee I hope I got that right says she uses uh, it for memory degradation adolescent development so you know the toy village gets destroyed for the love interest uh, the peppermint gum song Chris Caps Mflet uh, I hope I said that right uh, <laughs> uh, it, it cosigns our discussion about toxic positivity and as well as the role of sadness, especially when sadness com- comforts Bing Bong. Shayna Punim says uh, that she uses it to dis- to show what happens when depression uh, happen uh, when when folks go through depression, lack of feeling and numbness, and it's not feeling sad because sadness isn't in headquarters. Because the control board goes gray. Folks like Mary, Mary uh, Saksawa, uh, use it for the example of dualism when teaching consciousness. Well, I think it's amazing. Uh, Brian Nolan, of course, uses it for emotions the best. Uh, Julie Murray uses it in her intro psych class to talk about memory and rehearsal in memory, which is a really good one. Uh, and and uh, thank you for uh, giving me the consent, Julie, to to say your name. Appreciate it. Um, Jessica Brennan uses it for um, middle childhood social emotional uh, development, uh, which is perfect because Riley is 11 years old and she's, you know, moving on. Uh, Alyssa Rodkey talks about it in reference to one of the foremost... Uh, Voices in Emotion Theory, which is who is Magda Arnold, uh, and um, she she graciously linked 
Magda Arnold and her theories to us in that page. Uh, and and so many, many more posts. And, and that's the kind of response that I, I want to add to this program. So thank you to all who shared their thoughts and opinions on Inside Out. Okay, so memory. Um, let's talk about memory. <laughs> okay. Okay, I have to get this off my chest at the beginning. Um, as a <laughs> cognitive psychologist, as many of you know, in listening to the podcast, um, and a, a bit a bit of a dabble in memory. I'm not a memory researcher, but I'm a, a little bit of a dabble. Now, there are things that I like about the memory, and there are things that I don't like about the memory portrayal uh, in this movie. Um, and I have to get the, the negative, the, the negative Nancy one off first. And I had a Twitter, <laughs> I had a Twitter rant about this one. Uh, I don't know, f- several months ago. And it is the fact that the vast majority of the memory orbs that we see from O'Reilly are in the third person. Even though it's established in her very first, very first memory, which was first person, that that's how they work. They didn't even follow the own logic. They set up the logic <laughs> and they're like, nah, nah. Your memories cannot be in the third person. I'm sorry. They are. And we will go into this more. I, I noticed your notes. We'll go into this a little bit more, but mm, it gets me. I know. <laughs> I know it was a uh, artistic, artistic choice. choice to give the audience their perspective. <laughs> like it doesn't, <laughs> I get it. It doesn't work stylistically. It doesn't work story-wise to have Riley just sitting on the tree branch, staring off into something. And waiting for her parents to come up, you have no perspective as the audience. You're like, why are we looking off into the middle distance? We need the perspective of Riley, you know, slumped over on the tree branch for the sad part of the hockey emotion. Right. I get it. But, but you're going to grumble. I'm going to grumble it. about it. I'm going to grumble about it because they they they. If they were going to do that, they should have just made all of them third person. <laughs> she just made all of them third person. Oh boy! All right. Feel better? I do. Just a little bit. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Maybe a little bit. But um, what did you spot in in memory, Molly? So I will start with the things that I liked. All right, fair. It's a good counterpoint. I liked. <laughs> I I liked that, um, or maybe not liked, but. No, I liked that, you know, the whole kind of system shuts down at sleep. Uh, and that's when, you know, all the new memories from the day get sent back into yeah, that, long-term memory. That is good. And we don't know a ton about sleep, but we do know that sleep consolidates memory. Yeah. So I thought that was great. Yes, that was good. It was a nice yeah. little touch. It was a nice little touch with the, all of the gears whirring and, you know, sending them all off. And yeah. uh, going to long-term memory, which, by the way, 
looks fantastic because that all of the shelves where all of the memory mm-hmm. orbs sit are all on these wavy shelves, which were made right. to look like all of our convolutions, all of the all of the um, roundy bits that uh, sit on our heads. <laughs> That's a technical mm-hmm, term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do not think I realized that ah, until now. Next time you watch, <laughs> when they look out at the um, islands of personality, if you just stare right back at mm-hmm. it, um, you'll see that they're wavy. No, that makes total sense. I like that. Um, the one thing I that is uh, about long-term memory, though, is so first of all, it does seem endless. And as far as we know, long-term memory, we I mean, we haven't found the like storage or time limit of it death. yet, as far as I know, right? Yeah, death. Um, that's that's okay, the time th- limit. There we go. That's the limit. Yeah. Um, but the 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 forgetting part. I'm not sure what to do with that it, um, because, like, it it is true that things that we don't repeatedly return to or that don't have a lot of significance to us do get forgotten, mm-hmm. um, and that they're harder to retrieve. Yeah, retrieval um, failures. But that right, but that that pit of forgetting where you know Bing Bong goes off to die. Um, yeah like that makes it seem permanent it does and And it 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 could be we don't know because the the phenomenological issue with forgetting and specifically failure to retrieve is we can't observe the fact that you can't retrieve something right and so is it because it's gone or because there's some issue in the process right so I, i i wasn't sure um what to do with that. I will say though that I really love the little um you call them mind workers. I always called them like forgetters. Yeah, they um, they're just mind the workers. Paula and they're mind workers. I, and Paula and Bobby, which are the names of the voices, mm-hmm. the comedians who voice them. Exactly. And I love them. Um and so I I do really enjoy um their little bit and they're identifying which things to suck off the shelves and send into forgetting. Yep. Phone numbers. Well, we don't need all these. They're in her phone. Just forget it's all that, please. Hi. Forget it. I need to find Friendship Island. Four years of piano lessons. Yeah, it looks pretty faded. You know what? Save chopsticks and heart and soul. Get rid of the rest. Are you? U.S. presidents. What do you think? Yeah, just keep Washington, Lincoln, and the fab one. Forget them! Which is interesting because it seems like the forgotten ones or ones that don't have memories attached to them anymore, maybe they're... Maybe they're, um semantic memories when they turn gray like i don't versus the colored ones which are semantic are um episodic memories um right i'm not i'm not sure yeah what meaning to assign to that so they when they're sucking up the because i just watched this today to record the triple dent gum bit (laughs) when they're sucking them up they suck uh ones that are um colored Mm-hmm. For the various emotions, while also sucking up some gray ones, but then they leave gray ones on the shelves. So I don't know what the rhyme or reason is to that. They just look like they're, you know, kind of almost arbitrarily sucking with the vacuum. The the wasteland of forgetting. You're right. Uh, I was gonna add to this and and say that they they disappear. Maybe that was. I like to think maybe I'll say that this is my speculation and and uh, Paul Ekman and, and Dr. Keltner could say, no, fool, what are you talking about? 
I think that's exactly my how speculation they would say it. is that that is maybe pruning in the sense that if you uh, if you think about the orbs as a representation of neurons or a collection of neurons that when they go down into the pit that um they actually go through a culling and apoptosis and they're done those those cells are no more that's what i like to think of so no one else can see this but i'm looking at you skeptically now okay i i mean this is this is an issue with i think this kind of like in the brain perspective of the whole movie yeah. is that it's kind of implied that like personality and emotion and memories are like objects yes that can or locations that can be isolated in the brain and that's just not <gasps> how right, it works right. as far as we know and so that's why i'm not sure what so i think it's a really big leap no no to, i think you should uh, let me have this one <laughs> it's, it's a a moderately sized leap. I, I have to, I have, <laughs> otherwise I can't, it's like the third person, it's the third person right. memories thing for me. Okay, I if that's I have what to, we're going to do to make give sense it a process. of it. It has to have a process. Now you're right. About, we can hold on to that until we can replace it with a more reasonable model. Or yeah, ask what Pete Doctor was up to when he, he did that. Right. <laughs> <I'm just> really, <laughs> oh, Mr. That Doctor. reminds me of <clears throat> one of our... Um, one of our professors in grad school used to say that like all models are wrong. We're mm -hmm. just trying to find like the least wrong, the least wrong so one. Yeah. I will, I will tell you, I think your model is wrong, but we can hold on to <sighs> it until we have a less wrong one. <laughs> Stabs me right in the heart. I thought I was being clever. Uh, and when you talk about Disney movies, that's all you want to be is clever, clever. Yes. Um, <laughs> You know, so that's why I wrote maybe cold, but you, you know, that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Okay. It's fine. I'm, I can work with I'm, that. I'm totally okay with you um, taking a dookie all over my dream. It's fine. <laughs> it's not like it's the first time. We've been friends for like a decade. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> all right. So any other tidbits that you want to mention before we... Uh, before we, I think, tie a nice little bow on this one. I would say, so this is something that neither of us have particular expertise in, although at least you're living it, uh, is that developmentally, there's some really interesting things to I see. see in the movie too, right? So emotion and memory are the big ones. Yeah. Um, but there's also some cool stuff about personality and about development um, and coping in a more like kind of clinical perspective. So I think you could get a lot out of this movie, whatever perspective you're coming from. Um, but so that's one thing that I do think is nice is so that, you know, joy is the first emotion to appear. Mm -hmm. um, and that's pretty consistent that like positive and negative happen really quickly. Yeah. And then the other emotions appear over our development. Um, we do also see the switchboard get more complex yes. right, when she hits puberty. Mm -hmm. um, and that is certainly true. And the older we get and the more um, we develop, the more complicated and like mixed our emotions can be yeah um and i do think another important piece is that it's really representative of what would be happening in riley's life anyway um you know like obviously she's going through major life changes but around middle school um girls in particular do experience a 
pretty deep drop in the positive emotions um, that they experience mm-hmm. and experience higher levels of depression and negative emotion. Yeah. So developmentally, that's appropriate, too. Yeah. And it's just unfortunate for Riley that the two co-occur. Oh, yeah. And that she does this big talk move. about a one two punch. Yeah. Mm hmm. And then the third punch, you know, the hook, the, the left hook is her mom being like, yo, be my happy daughter because yeah. <laughs> I need some joy in my life because that brings me to my tidbit. Which is how other people's minds are set up, how other people's HQs are set up. And we see that um, we see our two other main characters, the mom and the dad. Um, They have uh, two other quote unquote leaders. So Joy is the leader for Riley for her, you know, first 11 years, we'll say, um, because she's 11 in the movie. Uh, But the mom's. HQ leader is sadness. She's also represented as the largest emotion, like by physical size. She's larger than the Mm -hmm. other four. And then in um, the dad, the leader. Who says things about, you know, putting foot down and all of that stuff, (laughs) pressing the button. The foot is down. The foot is down. Uh, Anger is uh, in control of HQ. now. We only get a tiny little look, so we don't know whether or not that that is accurate for their entire lives. But at least as adults, what we see is that there are different HQ leaders for different people, depending on how they outwardly act. Um, well, and I, a couple things about that. Um, first, I would say that's incredibly gendered, I think, in oh, yeah. like you expecting, you know, the male parent to be predominantly Uh, you know, led by anger. And then also right at that dinner scene, right, he's distracted and not paying attention Mm -hmm. and she's signaling to him. So that's very, um, I think, stereotypical. Yeah, very traditional roles kind of thing. uh, Oh, yeah. For what Um, they're doing. But that is consistent, right, with another uh, thing that we talk about in my class, which is affective style. So we all have these different emotions that um, are, you know, responses to things in the world. But people do have weight tendencies, dispositional ways of responding to the world. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's represented here, right? Someone who is overall a happy person or an angry person. Um, So I think that was a nice little touch. Yeah. Uh, Whether it was, uh, I am sure it was uh, chosen to be that way because then the other people that they show during the credits of the other heads, um, there are different (laughs) emotions that are leading those HQs. And then, you know, you have the cat. That just has nobody I leading the cat. Love the cat. Um, <laughs> but the other thing that I wanted to mention about HQ and the composition of HQ is that Riley's and and this this might be more speculation on my part, but it's something that I noticed um, when you compare Riley to the other characters uh, and gender norms is that Riley has a, a multi gendered HQ. Whereas the other characters that we see have a what is represented by a single gender HQ. And the interesting thing is that uh, that I picked up on is that Joy, her leader, is represented as a girl. And so Riley is a girl. But Riley doesn't do uh, traditionally girly things. She actually does a lot of things in more masculine ways. 
So she uh, plays hockey and she seems to be a bruiser. I got to tell you, like <laughs> what you what you can tell from the movie, the small little snippets of playing hockey is that she body checks people. So, oh, yeah, she kicks ass. So um, and then she, she, you know, she's somewhat fearless. So uh, going down that long flight of stairs, even the what leads her to uh, run away, that takes a lot of guts. Um, and whether it was intentional or not, I, I thought I thought it was a, an amazing touch um, to especially to little kids who are uh, thinking about that. And feeling different things, going through puberty, not understanding what their bodies are doing, um, or even just already knowing that they're trans or they're queer or something, uh, that Riley yeah. represents them in some in some ways. So I thought that was uh, I, I thought it was a nice touch, whether it was intentional. <laughs> Ask Pete, doctor. No. <laughs> Riley makes a great. Um- I wouldn't call her the protagonist. I think Joy is really the protagonist in this film. And, but and she sadness. makes a great um, framing yes. character. She, um, uh, I think she's the, she's a MacGuffin. That's for sure. She needs to, she's the, the vector through which the story occurs. So, uh, yeah. So, but she's a good character. I think, um, Oh boy, if I were to take all of Disney's almost 100-year history here, because um, we're coming up on 100 years, by the way. What? Um, yeah, with Steamboat Willie. Yeah, for real. Um, is I would say Riley is top five Disney characters of all time for me. I know she's technically a Pixar character, but whatever. They were already Disney at this point. Now it counts. Yeah, it counts. She's a Disney princess. And a Dizzy Prince in my heart. So. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's good. I want to thank Molly Metz for joining me to discuss Inside Out. Molly, while saying goodbye, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Don't forget to say goodbye. I, I... People are plugging, but then forget to say goodbye. So <laughs> where can people find out more about you and all of that? Well, first, thank you so much for saving Inside Out for me. You got it. Um, this was a lot of fun. Um, and I don't have any individual or personal projects that I'd like to plug. Um, but I will say that my most treasured um, professional association is the Society for Teaching of Psychology, APA Division Two. Um, you can find amazing resources and support on the website teachpsych.org, as well as on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, and if you mm-hmm. like the resources and you get some help out of them, consider becoming a member. Um, you can join on the website for just $25 a year, and I think it's a pretty great bargain. And you don't have to be a member of APA if you don't want to. Okay. And you don't have to be a member of APA. So, um, yeah. would you mind if I link them to your academic website? You are welcome to do so. I should probably update that soon anyway. It is mollyametz.com. Nice. I'm going to go ahead and link that in the uh, episode description. So, listener, I have... Um, a question for you. Do you love the podcast? Are you enjoying it? Well, I hope so. And if you 
have the opportunity to consider giving us a bit of help. We um, we want to keep this going, and uh, we don't want to um, do advertising. And if we can, you know, not do advertising, that would be amazing. So if you have the ability to, please contribute to the podcast uh, today. We would definitely appreciate it. And keep on sharing, keep on liking, keep on giving us your feedback. We appreciate the support. And until the next episode. Thanks for listening.